If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 9. Luke and chapter 9. If you uh, do not have a Luke scripture journal and you want one, we found two um, that are on the welcome desk out there. If you want it, you can use it. Go ahead and grab one. That'll be our gift to you. Um, We've been in Luke for um, off and on for almost a year. And uh, we jumped back in last week with 9, 1 through 9. Today we're going to look at 9, 10 through 17. And it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well, if you want to follow along there. Luke and chapter 9, start at verse 10. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's uh, read this together. The Holy Spirit says, On their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all that they had done, And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowd learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding village and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Taking the five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. When I say the word miracle, I wonder what you think of. What comes to mind when you hear that word miracle? As is the case with nearly every word in the English language, the word miracle may conjure up different things for different people. Writing on this topic, John Collins says this, we use the word miracle in a variety of ways. We could speak of the miracle of modern technology, meaning, say, that we're impressed with the power of surgery, medication to heal diseases that would have killed our ancestors. We could call sudden healing from cancer a miracle, meaning we don't know how it happened. In the 1980 Winter Olympics, the U.S. hockey team Ice hockey team defeated the superior Soviet team, which led Al Michaels to ask the viewers, do you believe in miracles? In the Princess Bride, Inigo and his friend. By the way, I'm reading a quote, okay? I'm not bringing up the Princess Bride. He is, okay? In the Princess Bride, Inigo and his friend Fezzik go to a man called Miracle Max because Wesley, the man in black, is mostly dead, and they need him resuscitated. They want Max to provide them with a miracle, What he does give them is a chocolate-coated pill that will revive Wesley, but its working is more in the category of mysterious medical technology. This is clear when Inigo and Fezzik carry the man in black away to give him the pill, and Max and his wife Valerie wish them luck storming the castle. Valerie says, think it'll work? Max replies, it would take a miracle. Meaning, what we might call a miracle in the fullest sense, that goes beyond his technology. End quote. In the Bible, miracles occur rather frequently and take on different 
a different definition than the ways we may use the word in the examples just given. Barry Blackburn says that in biblical scholarship, the English word miracle normally denotes a supernatural event. That is, an event which so transcends ordinary happenings, it is viewed as a direct result of supernatural power. And when it comes to these miracles in Scripture, opinions abound, of course, especially in our modern age of scientism and skepticism. Some see miracles in the Bible as a stumbling block, an unnecessary intrusion that distracts from the real important stuff. A well-known example of this, maybe that you know, is of this approach to Scripture that we see is the founding father, Thomas Jefferson, the chief architect of the Declaration of Independence. You know, Jefferson didn't like the miracle stories in the Bible. He didn't like them. And so he published his own version of the Bible called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And as he was working on this, he wrote his frenemy, John Adams, explaining that he had extracted, reduced, and cut down the gospel until the only thing left was the most sublime and benevolent code of morals that has ever been offered man. I mean, he literally took an exacto knife to his Bible and ripped out all the miracles. Daniel Silman says of this, Je- the Jefferson Bible may have proved the opposite of what Jefferson intended. It doesn't show Jesus to be a great moral teacher once his story is stripped of miracles, exorcism, and other acts that the former president found hard to believe. It presents Jesus rather as someone who didn't do anything. Jefferson's is a hard gospel. The blind do not see. The lame do not walk. The multitudes will remain hungry if the loaves and fish must be multiplied to feed them. Even those who look to Jesus for forgiveness of sins are left wanting. But now on the other hand, many Christians are just fine with miracles. Are you guys fine with miracles? Fine with these miracle stories. Seeing them is no stumbling block at all. But they also may not give them much thought at all. They may just see them as neat things that God did through human agents to show his divine power and not much else. The story before us, for example, is perhaps the most well-known miracle story in the life of Jesus. Do you guys agree with that? Christians and non-Christians alike Know the story of Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fish to feed possibly 10 to 15,000 people. And while the story may dazzle us, while we may consider it a pretty amazing thing that Jesus did here, we may also be tempted to read it and move on. And in so doing, perhaps we would miss the real reason miracles like this have been handed down to us. You know, of all the miracles that Jesus performed, this is the one and only miracle that is told in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John. It's the only one. Outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle all four gospel authors felt compelled under the direction of the Holy Spirit to include. Why? It's because this miracle, and this is important for us, clues us into the answer to Herod's question in verse 9. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And it sets us up to be able to answer more clearly the question Jesus will ask his disciples directly after this scene in verse 18. Who do the crowds say that I am? And more importantly, the question in verse 20, who do you say that I am? There's a reason our author Luke sandwiched this scene between the questions of Jesus' identity. Because in this well-known scene of the multiplication of fish and loaves, we are to learn something of who Jesus is. 
and knowing Jesus' identity, being able to rightly answer, who do you say that I am, is the most important thing that we can know in our lives. For the answer to that question controls how we live now and even into eternity. This miracle then is not simply a neat story, nor is it a stumbling block to be removed so that we get some moral code, as Jefferson thought. This, like all miracles, is given to us, as C.S. Lewis said, to announce not merely that a king has visited our town, but that it is the king, our king, that the creator has shown up as a person to do a new thing in the world. And this is what we'll see this morning. The story of perhaps Jesus' most well-known miracle is full of richness that we may have never seen before. It's a treasure trove of gospel truths, and the more you dig, the more treasure you will find. Have you ever, for example, stared at something, maybe something, some beautiful scenery or, uh, that you visited or a piece of art, and the more you stare, the more you notice? Have you ever had that experience? Or you look at something and you think you've seen everything about it, but then when you come back with fresh eyes, you see things you never spotted before. The text is much like this. If you've been in church for a while or grew up attending Sunday school, you've heard this story preached or taught, yes? (laughs) All of you. You know the story, don't you? But like the magic eye tests of my youth, there is more here than meets the eye which is why we're going to spend two weeks okay, in these verses, in verses 10 through 17, because there's simply too much treasure for one week. So in our time together this morning, I want us to consider what the text tells us of Jesus' identity. So we'll take a sort of 30,000-foot view, and then next week we'll get into the more ground-level, application, nitty-gritty kind of thing. Okay, So let's consider three things this morning. Three things this morning all have to do with Jesus' identity. Point number one. Jesus is compassionate. Number one, Jesus is compassionate. We open in verse 10 with Luke telling us that the disciples have returned from their missionary journey, that Jesus sent them out to what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 6. They then tell Jesus and one another of all that they had done. We don't get the contents of these reports, okay? We're simply told that they reported how their mission went. So Jesus knows the boys are tired, okay? They need some rest, and they need some decompression. So he takes them to Bethsaida to withdraw and perhaps rest and hear more of Jesus' teachings, okay? Because remember, Jesus is preparing them for a time when he will depart, and they must take on the mantle. So their education is ongoing. But they're prevented from withdrawing, aren't they? The crowds learn that Jesus was there, so they come to see him. And Jesus, is he bothered by this intrusion? He welcomes them. He didn't tell them that they are an intrusion or that his disciples need rest, so leave them alone or any such thing. Are you as gracious when you're interrupted as Jesus is here? I can swear, man, I wish I was. Because I swear my kids have a radar to when I open a book, it's like they could hear it from across the house And then all of a sudden they pop up and say, Daddy, right? I need something. And I'm not as patient as I should be. But Jesus isn't bothered by their wanting to get to him. Instead, he welcomes them. You know, in Matthew's version of this story, he says that Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
Mark also says something very important. He says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and I want you to remember this, he had compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus didn't mind the interruption from the crowds because he had compassion on them. But this isn't just the kind of compassion, you understand, that feels sorry for others and their plight. The word translated compassion here is only used of Jesus in the New Testament. And it means something like compassion from the bowels or the guts, compassion from the innermost part of the person. The innermost center part of Jesus is compassionate because that's who he is. Puritan Richard Sibbs put it this way. He said, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. With the works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. That is, whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. Adds Dane Ortland. the Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affection stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. Jesus' compassion is altogether different than ours, for it originates from his inner person. Compassionate is who he is. But his compassion is not the kind that is unwilling or unable to act. His compassion activates his actions, you understand. See, we may see someone and feel compassion. You ever see someone and feel compassion ourselves for them, but then do not act to alleviate their troubles. We may see a homeless man and feel compassion on him, but keep driving. We may see someone bound by their sins and simply hope for the best when we can intervene. We may know people who are sheep without a shepherd and don't know Jesus and have compassion on them, but not share the message of the kingdom with them. Or there may be times we feel compassion, but helping is simply outside of our ability. In such cases, we may want to do something with compassion, we feel, but cannot. Jesus' compassion is not like that. Jesus has compassion that both sees and feels and then acts. He doesn't feel compassion, just, he doesn't just feel compassion, he does something about it. Charles Spurgeon said this on the topic, he said, some people's pity is the pity of inaction. Oh, I do pity you very much, says a person to a sick woman. Your husband is dead, your children have have to be supported, and you have to work hard. Well, my good woman, I pity you very much, but I cannot afford to give you anything. I have so many calls upon me. He says, how much pity there is of that kind in the world. You get pity of that sort in abundance. If you lift the knocker of the first door you come to, you will get plenty of pity of that kind. Pity is the cheapest thing in the world, if that's all it is. But God's pity is not pity of that sort. It is not the pity which is mere pity. It is not the pity of inaction, but when his heart moves, his hand moves too. And he relieveth all the wants of those he pities. Friend, in your fallen state, left to your own devices, he saw you like he saw these crowds. Like sheep without a shepherd. Before even time began, our triune God had compassion on you. Do you know that? He knows all things perfectly, and so he knew before the foundations of the world were laid by his merely speaking that our first parents would plunge the world into darkness because of their rebellion. He knew you and I would be rebels too. 
And he knew that if left to our own devices, we would wander around from idol to idol looking for a shepherd but never finding it. And isn't that the root of all sin and idolatry? The looking for something to shepherd us into meaning and purpose and value. In other words, looking for something to save us, for something to make us whole. Now you get the picture, right, of sheep without a shepherd, don't you? You know sheep are not super bright. You know this? They they can't lead themselves, (laughs) They don't know where to go or what to do. They need a shepherd to lead them and guide them and protect them. If you let sheep wander on their own, you know what would happen? They would scatter. They would drink dirty water that would make them sick. They would get eaten by wolves and other predators. They would walk right off of cliffs or in the bodies of water and drown. They are utterly helpless on their own. They are just helpless They get themselves into trouble as they wander. This is why the Bible calls you and me sheep. Left to our own devices, we're not only helpless, we get into all kinds of trouble. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew none of our looking for other means of salvation would work. And before we were ever born, he had compassion on us. But unlike merely human compassion that sees someone in a desperate state and merely hopes everything works out in the end, Jesus' compassion is altogether different for it is a compassion that acts. See, Jesus came to Bethsaida knowing full well he would be interrupted. He went anyway. He sees the people and has compassion on them, so what does he do? He, verse 11, did what he told the disciples to do. He preached the kingdom of God, and he healed them of their diseases. In other words, he has compassion that led him to preach to them the only message that would offer them eternal life, and his compassion led them to tend to their physical needs as a sign of them to them what the kingdom of Christ will be like in the end which is an eternal place that lacks sorrow, pain, and disease. But it doesn't stop there, does it? When the hour is late and they need supper, what does Jesus do? The disciples say, send them away, which I think is reasonable enough, don't you? (laughs) But Jesus wants them to stay, so he performs a miracle that feeds them to the full. This is what his compassion does. It moves him to give of himself for the benefit of others. His compassion towards us was activated to the point that he willingly came down and took on flesh and lived the life we failed to live and died the death we deserved to die and rose from the grave bodily so that we could enjoy the same. Why? Why did he do all that? Because he knew you needed a shepherd. He knew you need salvation. He knew you would look to all kinds of things of earth to try to be filled and whole, so he provided true wholeness in his person and offers that to you if you would give him your allegiance. Not only does his compassion move him, it moved him to the point that he made the greatest move in history to get to you. Because that's who he is. But I want you to see that not only is Jesus compassionate and willing to do something about it, but I also want you to see that he's the only one who can do something about it. No one else can do what Jesus does. In the miraculous and in salvation, he is utterly unique in his person and his actions. This brings us to point number two. Point number two. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. 
seen is not only to make us see the greatness of Christ, which it does, but also his greatness in relation to everyone who came before him. Yeah, we're meant to read this and think especially of one Old Testament figure who was considered Israel's foremost hero, who led their forefathers in the most significant redemptive event in the whole of the Old Testament. Just think of this scene. Here we have people who are hungry and bread is supplied to them all seemingly out of nowhere. What Old Testament figure does God use to provide bread from heaven? Moses, right? We saw in our Exodus study. Will you recall Exodus 16? You remember when the people of Israel, fresh out of Egypt, with God rescuing them through his mighty arm, and they're walking along and following Moses, who's following God in pillar and cloud, and the people grumble that they're hungry. You remember? Well, long story short, God provides them with manna, literally bread from heaven to feed the Israelites. And he provided this over and over as they make their journey through the wilderness. Now, what do we have in Luke 9? We see someone else sent of God, providing bread for hungry people. But you know, in John 6, Jesus makes the connection even more explicit in this scene. After feeding the 5,000 there in John, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father give it to you, the true bread from the heaven, from heaven. So Jesus says it wasn't Moses who gave you manna, but God who provided bread from heaven. Moses was a mediator, but he wasn't the provider. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was the focus of provisions and was the one who filled people to the full. Whether it was Moses or Elijah or Elisha mediating, everyone knew that God was the one who was providing, even if he worked through his prophets. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? We're meant to see that Jesus is the truer and better Moses, for he is not only the mediator, but he's also the provider. What Moses did as a mediator between Yahweh and Israel was but a shadow of what Jesus would be the substance of. Think of a shadow. A shadow gives you the idea of the shape of something, right? But only seeing the object will give you the full sense. No one looks at a shadow and believes it's the real thing. Rather, the shadow points us to look at the full expression of the object. Jesus is the full expression of what the Old Testament figures like Moses and objects like the tabernacle were merely shadows of. The authors of the book Echoes of Exodus explain it this way. Jesus is followed by a multitude of Israelites who have no food. So Jesus delegates authority to his disciples, as did Moses. Gets them arranged in groups of 50, as did Moses. And provides heavenly bread for them all, as did Moses. The parallels extend to the oddest of details, like the fact that only the men are numbered, and that there are 12 baskets of food left over, one for each tribe, presumably. So Jesus acts here as both the mediator who desires to rescue the sheep, the shepherdless sheep, and the one who provides bread himself. He just doesn't need to go through any intermediaries to provide bread, you understand. Just as he spoke and the seas hushed. You remember looking at that? And just as he said a word and the demons fled. And just as he said, little girl, arise, and life returned to a previously dead child. Jesus is God in flesh and commands all things, and they obey like this. He is the truer and better mediator, the truer and better Moses, who Moses himself was looking forward to rejoicing in. Whereas Moses ascended the mountain but couldn't see God's face, Jesus, as God, descended the mountain. And we're told in John 1 that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has. In fact, 
One can only know God through his Christ. Whereas Moses built the tabernacle under God's direction so that God would dwell in the midst of people, John 1 tells us what? That in the person of Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the greater Moses, and he intends to do what Moses did, but to a further extent. See, as he looks at us and sees that apart from him, we are sheep without a shepherd, he sees that our problem is so deep that we're in bondage, as Israel was in bondage in Egypt. But where theirs was a physical bondage, ours is a spiritual one. See, we are bound by our sin. We are in spiritual chains, and we are helpless to break free on our own. We are just as helpless and hopeless as the Israelites were in Egypt who were slaves to a horrible ruler who would rather cast their baby boys in the sea than see them multiply and risk some outside chance that they join his enemy forces. But just as God condescended to rescue the Israelites and called Moses to be the mediator to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land, so God has condescended to rescue us out of our spiritual bondage. But he doesn't call some fallible human mediator, does he? He himself is the mediator in the flesh, and he intends to lead you through the wilderness to the promised land of the new heavens and new earth. See, in a few weeks, we're going to get to Luke's telling of the transfiguration. If you look down at your Bible or Scripture journal, you can see it in chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And in that scene, we're told Peter, James, and John go up this mountain with Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus is transformed and is talking with Moses and Elijah before the disciples' very eyes. And of all the things they could talk about, you know what they were discussing? It says that if you look down at the transfiguration text, they were talking about the work of Christ to come, namely his atoning death and victorious resurrection. Verse 30, Luke says this, Behold, two men were talking with him, and there were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure. Do you see that word departure? Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This word, stick with me, translated departure that Luke uses is used only by him in the Gospels. And only two other times in the New Testament. Of all the words that Luke could have chosen for departure, he chose the Greek word exodus. Say the authors of Echoes of Exodus once more. This indicates that exodus of Jesus is not just about his death, but about his glory, authority, revelation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is not just leaving, he's starting an exodus a long-awaited escape from the land of slavery into a new world flowing with milk and honey in which the slave masters are thrown down and drowned in the sea, but the multitude of faith, both Jew and Gentile, find freedom. You see? Jesus has brought us, is bringing us, and will bring us through a truer and better exodus. This story of bread and fish isn't just for us to look and say, wow, it's cool that Jesus could do that, like he were a stage magician. It's for us to see as the people would see a better Moses is here and he will lead us who follow him to a better Exodus. Just when everything seemed hopeless for Israel. You remember the story of Exodus? Just when there was no way that rescue could come. Just when they were at their most helpless, God provided a means for their rescue by himself doing the seemingly impossible. And just when all hope seemed lost for us, Just when we come to grips with the depths 
of our own sinfulness, that we have offended an eternally holy God and we deserve to be vanquished like Egyptian charioteers, just when we realized that we could not save ourselves even if we had a thousand lifetimes to try, just when we realized that our greatest foe resides not out there but in our own heart, just when we realized we are firmly in the kingdom of darkness, actively pursuing the deeds of its ruler with all of our might, just when we realize we are sheep without a shepherd, tossed to and fro by our passions and lust, which all cause us to say, there's no hope for me. Just when we come to an end of ourselves, here stands before us the same God who sent plagues and parted seas, who felt such compassion on you that he was willing to be a wrath absorber, cross bearer, grave conqueror, and enemy vanquisher, and he is also thus the king of all things. And he sees you at the end of yourself. And he extends a nail-scarred hand offering to be your rescue and your champion and your love and your life. And it cost him everything to provide you this truer and better exodus. But you know something? He will gladly pay it because his love for you is so unmeasurable that a trillion Red Seas couldn't contain it. And he wants you to know that he intends to lead you through this wilderness that we call earth never finding a home here, but knowing full well that we are strangers and exiles in a foreign land because we belong to a better country, a better kingdom that is not of this world. Friend, Christian, you should not feel at home here in this world. You are being led by the truer Moses who is pointing you to a better land flowing with milk and honey. Do you feel at home here? Truly? You know, many of you have visited other countries, yes? No? All of you have never been outside of Georgia. All right. How do you feel, if you've been to these other countries, how do you feel in these four nations where you're just a visitor? Do you make yourself at home? Yeah, I've been to a few countries, and I could sense, I just sense every time that I was just a foreigner. When I was in Kuwait and Iraq, I felt that. (laughs) I never felt at home in those places. I knew I was a stranger there. And I knew, you know what? The locals didn't want us there either. And every day I was there, I longed to be back in my house in Alaska with Sila and Ariel. That was my home. Not that foreign country. In fact, every single day my homesickness grew stronger. You see where I'm getting at with this? My foreignerness, if I could say that, reverberated more and more in my heart. No matter what I did, I knew I couldn't feel at home in those four off far-off countries. This is how we should feel here on earth as Christians. Every time we look around and see pain and injustice, every time we see suffering and loss, every time we feel things we give ourselves to leave us empty, we should take that as a reminder that we are citizens of a far-off land. And this world is not our home, at least not until Christ renews the world and resurrects our body. You know the problem, though, don't you? We often forget we're exiles and strangers. We forget that Jesus is a better Moses, leading us to a better land. We forget that our ultimate loyalty is to the only kingdom that won't fall or fade. 
And we invest more in things that moth and rust destroy, that thieves break in and steal, than we do in the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. You remember what Screwtape told Wormwood, don't you? He said that prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it's finding its place in him. That his increasing reputation and widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is what the enemy wants. Is that not true? Does our increasing comfort and worldly success not endanger us to feeling quite at home in a world we're to be foreigners and strangers in? This is why comfort and ease, far from being means of growth, are the means by which we stunt our growth in the Lord. This story is reminding us that Jesus is a better Moses who leads us home. But until we get there, we are foreigners in the wilderness. So every time we're reminded of the fallenness of the world, we should indeed lament and we should have compassion and we should help where we can and we should extend the offer of the kingdom to them. But we should also use that to remind ourselves that we are citizens of a far superior nation not at home in this fallen world, and we should constantly pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But now if we're exiles and strangers in a foreign land, if we are in the wilderness being led by a truer Moses, how will we be sustained until we arrive safely in the truer promised land? Well, this is how, point number three, our third and final point. Jesus is the truer manna from heaven. Point number three, Jesus is the truer manna from heaven. As if Jesus being the truer Moses, who is both mediator and provider, wasn't enough, we're meant to see that Jesus himself is the true bread, which gives life. Although we are meant to see here allusions to Exodus 16, we're also supposed to see differences. Consider verses 16 and 17 again. In Exodus, the people get enough to eat, but they weren't supposed to have excess. Do you remember that? They weren't supposed to collect excess. They got just enough to where they weren't hungry, but overabundance was warned against. But what do you have here in verse 17? All ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Literally, it says, they ate and were filled all. So the people could eat as much as they wanted to, and they were filled to the full. So much was produced that there were 12 baskets left over. This is meant for us to see that Jesus not only satisfies, he satisfies abundantly. More than we can ask or think. He is more than we can imagine. But what, what we must see is not only that Jesus provides the only bread that satisfies super abundantly, but that he is himself the bread that satisfies. And in fact, the early church, you know, they read the story and they interpreted it with reference to manna in the wilderness. Just as Moses fed the crowds in the wilderness with heavenly food, so Jesus feeds the crowd with the bread of heaven that will satisfy their hunger forever. Again, John makes this connection explicit because, you know, a few verses, if you look at John 6, which I invite you to do sometime this afternoon, a few verses after this story, he shows us saying, Jesus saying, the Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then the people say this, sir, give us this bread always. 
To which Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, a little bit later after the people grumbled, can you imagine? Like their forefathers did in the wilderness. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see? Jesus is mediator. I want you to get this, okay? Jesus is mediator and he's provider and he's Yahweh, the great I am, and he's the true bread, the true manna who came down to heaven, from heaven to offer his flesh on the cross in your stead. Literally in place of you so that you could feed on him and never die. So you could draw off of him and draw off of him and draw off of him while you traverse this wilderness. And here's the beauty of Jesus. If you come to him, he will simultaneously fill you up with himself. He will satisfy you, but he will also cause you to want more of him. That's why he's our daily bread. He doesn't want us to just feast once and move on as if he were a means to an end. He wants us to come to him and he delights in our coming to him and looking to him to satisfy and he will be faithful and true to fill us every time. You know, today you could leave here and go have the best meal you've ever had, right? You have the best meal of your life. You could enjoy your favorite food. You could eat and eat and eat and be full. You could be full to the point that you say like I do sometimes. Have you ever said this? I never want to eat again. You ever feel so full your stomach hurts? Of course you have. But you know the bummer thing about eating is that you'll have to do it again. <laughs> right? No matter how full, full you feel. And you'll have to do it again and again and again because when you're full, you're not truly satisfied because at some point you'll be hungry again. The bread of heaven, Jesus, is not like that. You go to him for fullness and he'll satisfy you and make you whole, but you'll want more, not because he doesn't feel you, but because he does. So satisfying is Jesus that those who feast on him as the bread of life will never die. Of course, Jesus doesn't call us to physically eat his flesh and drink his blood like some cannibals, but he's using this graphic language to point us to his death, his offering to, of sacrifice as a truer and better Passover lamb. To feed on Jesus is to go to him and trust him to be satisfied by him and give your allegiance to him and return to him daily, and thus you'll find in him the only real and true eternal satisfaction that there is. So in all of this, my, question is, my questions are these. I want you to ask and answer these in your heart. Do you feel at home here? Truly. Where are you currently looking to be your bread, to be your satisfaction? What are you looking for for satisfaction and wholeness? It's something. I can assure you of this. What is it for you, I wonder? Now, here's the thing about life in this world. We're helpless sinners in rebellion to our Creator. You know this? And we've rebelled against Him. 
And we thus have a hole in our hearts and our lives, and we know it. The, the problem is we try to fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts with things that, aren't shaped, that are shaped like everything else. The problem is we're looking to be satisfied with candy instead of the bread of life, which is what our soul is truly craving. And that's the problem. We know deep down it's a problem because we don't just go to things that we think will satisfy us once. We go back to them and 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 we're just as empty the thousandth time as we were the fifth time we went. It's never enough money, is it? It's never, enough, it's never a nice enough or new enough car. It's never enough vacations. It's never a good enough partner. It's never enough recognition. It's never enough thrills. It's never enough likes on social media. It's never enough hobbies. It's never enough success. It's never enough. We need more because as much as we think we love the things that will fade, we know deep down that they can't make us any more whole or satisfied. You know, there's a novel that came out many years ago. It was written by this fellow, David, David Lodge, called Therapy. And it tells of a man who seemingly has everything you could ever want. He has it all. From the outside, you look at him, he's successful in business, he's been happily married for 30 years, he has a nice house and more. But he senses something's wrong. But he doesn't know, he can't, he can't put his finger on it, so he goes to a therapist. Well, the therapist tells him to make a list of all the good things about his life in one column and a list of all the bad things in the other. Under the good column, he wrote, professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched into adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. And under the bad column, he wrote one thing. Feel unhappy most of the time. That's the thing about pursuing pleasure and worldly things in this life. We'll never be satisfied. And you know that, don't you? Only Jesus satisfies completely. He's the only bread of life who can make us whole. Trevor Wax says this, I am the bread of life is another way of saying without my death, you can't live. Just as bread is the essential element in the human diet, Jesus says that he himself is the foundation for spiritual life. Without his death, no one else can live. Those who come to him will never again be hungry. Those who believe in him will never again thirst, though his death, through his death we live. You know, in John's gospel, after Jesus makes these declarations, some people who were following him went away. They don't want to follow him anymore. And his words of being the true manna that came from heaven is too much. Jesus sees this, okay? He's unsurprised by this. But he asked the 12, do you want to go away as well? Peter, can you imagine him being the one who speaks up? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And you know, some people in this crowd, of over 10,000 people that witnessed Jesus miraculously feeding them to the full, 
recalling Moses and the manna from heaven, some of them got their meal, they got their healing, they heard Jesus preach about the kingdom, and they left. And they stopped following. They, they went and looked for bread somewhere else. Friend, this is the choice you have today. You've heard the truths about this glorious Christ. The bread of heaven who satisfies now and forever. Would you leave today and keep searching for satisfaction of things of earth? Or will you see the truth of Jesus and say, where else shall I go? You have the words of life. But let me ask, friend, where do you presently look for satisfaction? Do you see that Jesus knows you and sees your struggles and has compassion on you and that he is the greatest of all prophets for he is more than a prophet? You see that he is king and that he is Messiah and that he is God in flesh who was so moved with love for you that he would condescend to get to you? Do you see that in this picture of bread that satisfies that it is pointing to a cross that Jesus' bread was broken like the literal bread of verse 16 and that for you? Would you know all that and continue to look for satisfaction in anything in this world? Would you see that Jesus' broken and raised and ascended body means that he intends to bring a better promised land and a fulfilled kingdom and that you are invited to be a citizen of that better kingdom and to locate your home in a place not of this world? That Jesus wants to lead you through the wilderness that is this fallen world while being your bread from heaven to give you the wholeness that you so crave and look anywhere else? Go to him today. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, and find your satisfaction now and always in abundance.